You may ask, how did this tradition get started? I'll tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. And because of our traditions, every one of us knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Day and night must scramble for a living, feed the wife and children, send his daily press. And welcome to Let's Talk Torah. I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson with NRM Streamcast. And we'll spend the next hour talking Torah, learning stuff, and having fun while we learn. If you'd like to contact the show, you can always call us at 844-999-9249 or email us at letstalktorah at gmail.com. Well, it was a little confusing in the headphones over there, but I think now I don't hear the background noise. That's much better. Anyways... It's been an amazing couple of weeks. Last week we did a rebroadcast. My son's wedding was last week, Thursday. And, you know, a wedding is fun. If you haven't enjoyed a child's wedding, you should try. It's actually a lot of fun. Um, lots of pressure, lots of things happening. But really, you know, the most important when somebody has what we call a simcha, a joyous occasion, you want family, you want friends, just to share in your joy, in your enjoyment, it enhances the whole event. And all the people that were there was really, really fun. That was my wife's words afterwards. You come home that night after six or seven hours, and you, the kids collapse in bed, and we bring food home from the wedding hall because who has time to eat? And at 1.30 in the morning, we're sitting and sort of like rehashing everything that happened. And my wife's words were, it was really fun, which is really fantastic. So I thought it's a good opportunity to talk about what happens at a Jewish wedding. What's going on? A Orthodox Jewish wedding. Now, really, any Jewish wedding should have all these things. Maybe you've seen them. Maybe you noticed them. Maybe you didn't realize what was happening. So let's, uh, let's try to take it from, not from the beginning, but from most of the beginning. I mean, I don't have to tell you about pictures and gowns and suits and ties and shirts. Who cares about that? So um, this really depends on customs. There's a lot of different customs. I'm going to really focus on my customs because my customs I know, other customs I don't know as well. But in the, in the European... Um, set of customs, the bride and groom, or the chassin and the kala, do not see each other for a week before the wedding. It's not, a, it's not a bad luck issue. It's just one of these things was always created. They do not see each other for a week before the wedding. So get my pictures. You're not having them in pictures together until after they're actually married. And, um, but what happens is, and it's an interesting reason, the, um, what happens is the bride is in her room with her friends and her family and her mother and the, and my wife was there, obviously, and the family. So all the ladies are in that room, and the men are hanging out uh, with the boys. They want something to drink. They want something to eat. There's certain legal documents, which we could talk about, that have to be filled out. And then the, like, the really first process is what's called the badekin. But that means that the groom, the chassan, will be accompanied by his 
father and future father-in-law and all the friends are dancing him into the room and there's music and it's lively and the Kala, the bride, is sitting there and the chassan will go and put a veil over her face. So when she comes down to the canopy, there's a veil. But really part of the, the idea of what we call the Bedeccan is that Yes, he hasn't seen her for a week, but you know you gotta always be worried about some sly father-in-law, or some sly girl who wants to make a change at the last minute. And if they're wearing veils, how's he gonna know? So we talked about this way back. It's really the year is coming; so it's gonna happen again. Um, when Jacob made his plans with his father-in-law Lavan to marry Rachel, so at the wedding, Lavan pulls a switch on Jacob. And the wrong girl comes down to the wedding, and Jacob doesn't know. Okay, she's wearing a veil. Could be they were little girls. So, I mean, they were 12 years old, 14 years old, and he'd been working all these years, hadn't really seen them, so he did not know that his father-in-law pulled a fast one. So, you know, I guess one up for all father-in-laws. But so that's where the bedek and the groom will go down, and he'll put this veil whatever veil the mother-in-law is going to put on her head, he'll put it on, and then they'll dance back, they'll get ready for the, for the wedding ceremony. And uh, that's, like, that's part one. And the, the fathers will give the, the bride blessings. And if there's grandfathers, there are actually three grandfathers. It's very beautiful. And the grandfathers will give blessings. And everyone goes their merry way. The bride goes to her room. The groom goes to his room to get ready for the for the actual wedding ceremony. So what happens? So in that room, it's a last chance. Parents give a special blessing to their children. Um, there's a few other things that are done. One, interesting enough, is there are ashes put on the head of the groom. Why? Because the greatest tragedy that happened to the Jewish people was the destruction of the temples. And the rabbis in the Talmud instituted, they felt, and there's a few places we do it during a wedding ceremony, that we still need to remember when we're so happy and it's such a beautiful occasion. But at the same time, God is not so happy. He's very happy for your, for your wedding. Um, but he's not happy because the temple is not rebuilt. That means his, his presence can't really be in this world, and that's a loss. So even at our greatest time of pleasure, it's important that we remember, yes, we're very, very happy, but God is not very happy because his temple hasn't been rebuilt. So one of the things we do is put a little ashes on his head, not on the forehead, on the, on the top, on the on the place you'd wear your tefillin, your phylacteries. It's, and there's a few little ashes and you cover with his hat, who cares? Another thing we do actually is the chassin, the groom, will wear a kittel. A kittel is basically a long white shirt. It's really um, burial shrouds. And again, it's part of the idea, the, the concept of the day, which is a very important and interesting thought. Um, the day that a Hassan and Kala, for they themselves are getting married, that's actually considered their own personal day of atonement. It's called Yom Kippur. It is their own day that God sets aside for them that these two individuals um, will get married with a clean slate. So yes, they have to 
repent and they have to understand they're starting a new life and a married life and now there's someone to take care of and they can't be as selfish it's not only about themselves anymore and now it's about uh, about their spouse so it's a they're actually fasting generally speaking the bride and groom will fast they don't all fast they don't all fast the whole day but but at least the original concept was to fast because this is your Yom Kippur so somebody said to him, lucky you, you get a Yom Kippur today, and a couple weeks from now, there's another Yom Kippur. How much, how many bad things could you have done in a couple weeks, right? So your next Yom Kippur, you're really set up to be in a pretty good position. So the Kitzel, again, is is part of the reminder that uh, that we're, we're, we're atoning and we're, 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 we're asking for forgiveness, and I was... I don't have to forgive. I mean, I have to forgive the groom. He doesn't have to technically forgive me. It's not my Yom Kippur. Now we don't, but we don't want the whole world, even though we all know. But the the that kitzel, that long white shirt, is like private. So they'll put like a raincoat, like a rain and shine coat, not the yellow raincoats. They'll put one of those black London fog, whatever they are, coats, and they'll wear that to cover the kitzel when they go down. Okay, now. The groom will go down first. So he's going to walk down. And it happens to be that my son's head rabbi, who ran the ceremony, has a very beautiful custom. And that is that the, all the boys, the men in the family and the, and, the, and the boys' friends, actually walk behind the groom to the wedding. It's the most beautiful thing. They, and they're all excited because the boys from this school know all about it. And the crowd usually is clueless because we're from Detroit and it's taking place in New Jersey. But people are looking, well, what's with this family? Where do all these people come from? It's really very beautiful. Um, the girls' side could do the same, but since the girls' side has their own rabbis, so they wouldn't even know to to do it, but it's it's really just a very beautiful something unusual, but really very beautiful. So the again, my custom is that the father and mother walk down their son, and again the girl, the bride's father, mother walk her down. Some people have a, a custom that the fathers walk down the boy and the mothers walk down the girl. That's really just uh, different European customs. So everyone does whatever the custom is. So you walk down, you have candles. Candles always are a sign of happiness. Um, so you walk down, and you're under the canopy waiting for the bride to come down. Again, some people have more, and relatives. We just had them all come at once. Um, flower girls, or who knows what people do. That's not really—people could do it. It's not part of the, the Jewish part of the ceremony, at least. So now the bride has to walk down. So again, you wouldn't know unless somebody told you to look for it. You wouldn't know, but um, actually, when the when the bride is coming up to be under the canopy, so the groom, the chassan, will take a few steps forward and then walk back when she comes up. So the question is where that comes from. So it's it's interesting where it comes from. Um, it says when God gave the Jewish people the Torah, so he he came out to greet the Jewish people. In other words, um, God is by Mount Sinai. Sorry, my string over here is getting my way a little bit. All right, that's better. Um, so when God is coming down with his presence on Mount Sinai, so it says the Jewish people were coming out, and God went out to greet the Jewish people. His presence went to greet the Jewish people like a 
groom, like a chassin, goes to greet his bride. So this concept that the Talmud is talking about, like a groom goes to meet his bride, means that that concept existed thousands of years ago. Because you're comparing God meeting the Jewish people to a groom going to meet the bride. So that means God was doing what was already in the standard customs. So exactly the reason I'm not sure, but clearly we see this is an ancient ancient custom, and nobody starts with ancient customs, and it gets very beautiful. Most people won't even notice it. Then there's someone on the side. He's singing types of praise uh, about God, and the, and the, and the bride um, walks around the groom seven times. Um, the mother's holding her hand or her veil, not her veil, like her gown, and the mother, future mother-in-law, is holding, again, either her hand or, or part of her train, depending what the what the girl's wearing. To walk around seven times. That concept of seven times, we do find in a few places. One of the famous places is when Joshua was fighting Jericho, the first city the Jewish people um, went to war with when they entered the land of Israel. So they walked around the city, well, for six days they walked around once. And on the seventh day they walked around seven times, and then they blew their trumpets, and then the walls came crashing down, and that was the end of that battle. Okay, so now, broom and grind is standing there, parents are standing up to the side, rabbi is called up, witnesses are called up. And there's, interesting enough, there's really two parts to the wedding ceremony you wouldn't even notice. Um, the first part is, is the Hebrew word is kedushin. It's, it's sort of like part one of the wedding ceremony. Um, in earlier times, 100, maybe 100, 2, 3, 400 years ago, this could have been done giving the ring Okay, the giving of the ring could have been done a year before they finished the wedding process. We just do everything at once. It makes like simple. So the rabbi will make two blessings, and then the chas and the groom will take the ring, and he will say the words in Hebrew, which means that I'm giving you this ring, and you'll be betrothed is the fancy word. It really means that she's permissible to her husband. Now she's now forbidden to every other man. That's really what's what's happening. Um, and that'll take place. And there's you need a, a you need something to make this concept, this idea that she is she only belongs to her husband for relations, obviously. And that's not a slave, that's ridiculous. Right? But she she belongs to her husband to be married and she's forbidden to every other man. You need you need to do some type of legal action to accomplish that. So the way we make that legally binding is by giving, by, by the bride accepting something of value. It could be a dollar bill. It could be a quarter. It could be a hot dog. It could be anything. But we happen to use a ring. That's the, that custom's been around forever to use a ring. It doesn't must be a ring. But the fact of the matter is that everybody uses a ring. That's, that's what everybody does. Um, after that... Um, there's sort of like a break, and they will read the ketubah. The ketubah is the, is the marriage contract. Um, the marriage contract says a husband's responsibilities to his wife. It doesn't say anything about the wife's responsibilities to the husband, but it's the husband's responsibilities to the wife. He'll take care of her in marital relationships and food and clothing and a place to live and all the things the husband's responsible for. And interesting enough, it also says that if the husband wants to divorce his wife, in this document, there's already a financial, uh, 
dispensation is the wrong word, but there's what it's going to cost the groom, what it's going to cost the chassan to divorce his wife. So that's all. That's part of the contract. So that contract will be handed over to the girl because this is her contract to go ahead and protect yourself. That it shouldn't be easy just to say I'm tired of you and you're out of here. That's called the ketubah. Um, after that's read, it's given over, and then there's seven blessings. So. The first two are usually given to the same person, and different people will be called up, and they'll, and they'll, uh, they'll say the blessings, and they'll stand on the side, and then before everything's said and done, the, um, and again the bride for the most part is wearing her veil still the whole time, um, so, it's I mean it's interesting if you think about it. So they actually break a glass. They usually take a glass cup and they wrap it up and so no one's going to get hurt and it's probably not so hard to break and they have the right kind of glass. And the chassan will use his heel to break it so he doesn't hurt himself. And everybody yells, Mazel Tov! And the music starts blaring and now they're married because this is called the canopy and this is like the second part of the of the marriage um, ceremony. So... Um, so it's interesting because we're doing it again to show we're sad that the temple is destroyed. So we want to break something. In the olden days, time of the Talmud, it seems that we'd even break a more expensive piece of glass. We're breaking a cup. What's it worth? A few dollars. So, um, so we're breaking that glass. So it looks like this says, okay, let's all dance. Let's all sing. Let's all party. But, but really the intention is to, again, remember that the temple was destroyed. So that should give you, and then they go off, and they're going to be in a room by themselves for 10 or 15 minutes, and then the rest of the, of the wedding takes place, and the dancing and singing, and here comes my music. And um, I need you to hold through the break, because we're going to be joined by Charles Hanna, who's going to talk about Greek and Roman myths and Torah and stories. You don't want to miss him, so hold through the break. You're listening to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we're going to be right back. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the fat cemetery. It's got a cord. <laughs> I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Yeah. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? Hey, how are you? I'm Gerald Valley, and I want to invite you to listen, watch, share my new show, The Drop-In. It is going to cover skate, music, culture, actually all sports. I have some great guests lined up, and it's to inspire and motivate people to make the most of this life we have. Check out the inspiration, the stoke, and the life of The Drop-In with Gerald Valley. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you.
And we are joined by Charles Hanna. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. He's a freelance writer and author. Uh, his latest book, Sinai and Olympus, How Greek Mythology and the Bible Present Different Takes on Life. Chaim David, how are you? Good. How are you today? I am doing excellent. I just finished my my son's Sheva Brachas last night, so I'm really doing fantastic. <laughs> okay, Mabel Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you for calling. Huh, my pleasure. We're looking forward. We're going to have fun. But before we even start, um, who is Charles Hanna? Sure, that would be me. Um, <laughs> I'm a copywriter, freelance writer, as you said. Um, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, and then um, I got a uh, bachelor's in literature from the University of Miami. And then I went off to Orsameach to study for a bit, and then uh, I went back to graduate school. And I got a master's degree in folklore studies, which is a little bit halfway between literature and anthropology. And um, I moved out to Philly to teach. Um, and then when I met my wife, I moved to, to Baltimore, and now I work as a copywriter. So it's a little bit about me <laughs> in a nutshell. That was very good because, you know, like, all right, we'll, we'll get to it. Like, uh, I couldn't, it, it's, when I, when I was a kid, I happened to have read the Greek mythology and Roman mythology, but it's not one of the more Jewish topics. It's many would say it's like studying idol worship. So it's like a an interesting topic that somehow you got into. Yeah, um, I definitely would not encourage uh, Jewish uh, Jewish people to go out and go out of their way to read it. But growing up, I didn't really have uh, from head in my home, so it wasn't necessarily something off limits. Um, I've always I've always stories, fairy tales, um, mythology, things in that genre. So I just kind of ended up studying it and gravitating toward that. Yeah. Cool. So let's get our, our, our language, our words, uh, make sure we're speaking the same language. Um, what is mythology? What is it? Like, what's the word so, mean? Where does it come from? Yeah, help me out. Sure. So when we use the word mythology or myth, um, really more so myth today. Uh, to us, it means something. Like when we use it in conversation, it, it usually connotes something that's not true. Um, like, oh, that's a myth. That's not true. Um, and when we say mythology, we tend to think of, as you said, Greek mythology or Roman mythology, sometimes, you know, Norse mythology. Um, but um, what mythology actually means is the sacred narrative that belongs to a group of people. And there's no uh, judgment about truth or untruth in that definition. So any group of stories that a culture has is their mythology. So as this is, you know, is it something that's been passed down? It's something that their that their um, priests would have been uh, teaching the different generations. Where, where is it coming from? Right. So um, for us, we believe that you know, Matan Torah is the genesis of everything that's written in the Torah. So our, we believe very strongly that our mythology is God given. But as far as um, other mythologies, um, I'm not sure how they how they started. But in ancient times, uh, as you said, like maybe a priest or a storyteller would relate these tales, um, and a lot of times they were part of religious rituals, um, and they were not just for entertainment. They, um, you know, one reason they came to be is that they might um, address questions about how the world was created or. Um, sort of more personal questions such as what is my, what is what is my purpose in life or what is the meaning of life so oh so amazing so in other words, it's it's really 
you know, it's for every, we can say religion, but I don't know, is Nor- I don't know if Norse or Roman or Greek specifically is a religion, but, but certainly for the culture, um, every culture has to go and say why I exist and why I'm the best and why you want to hang out with me. And so at some point, the stories have to come from somewhere. Yeah, um, I don't know if you could find anyone who knows where they where they came from. I mean, psychologists who are you know Freudian or Jungian might say they uh, come from the imagination or sort of like a collective unconscious um, of just. I mean, for instance, every, you know most people around the world are afraid of snakes, spiders, bugs. Um, so these kind of universal symbols over time sort of turn into myths and stories that get passed down. So. You know, almost like the stories that parents would tell their kids when they have to make up something so they create a scary... uh... (laughs) Right. (laughs) So one thing I know you write about in your book, and again, we're talking to Charles Hanna, and his book is Sinai and Olympus, How Greek Mythology and Bible Present Different Takes on Life. So so really, the first question, I think we really answered it, but, um, but you write in your book that many cultures have similar myths. And so the question really is, first of all, why do they have, why do all these cultures from everywhere around the world have similar stories, unless you think somebody transported a story from one location to another, which could be a possibility. Um, So let's start with that. Why do so many cultures have similar myths? Sure. Yeah, it's really amazing how every culture has a creation story, a flood story, um, a narrative about some sort of heroic king, um, you know, which in our case is David HaMelech, but every culture has these stories. And I'll give you three reasons um, why that could be. The first is sort of what we touched on, and I'll call it a, a biological or psychological um, condition that's common to all people. Um, there's sort of this collective unconscious of symbols we all agree on that represent certain thoughts or feelings, and that's how, you know, over time these stories came out to be. Another possibility is, as you said, yes, people did bring stories from one place to another through trade or war or, you know, just expanding their population, moving different places. And, um, for instance, uh, secular academics conjecture that a lot of uh, fairy tales in the Western world initially came from India uh, through a, in a collection that's called the Panchatantra, and that the, the Gemara was actually one means of, tra- of the way these stories migrated from east to west, some of the narratives appear in the Talmud. And um, it's, you know, one of many indicators about how stories do move places over time. The third reason that I would say, um, which, which I kind of uh, address in my book, um, and there's actually the, an allusion to this in the, in the book of the Kedusha Slavi, which I think is very interesting. Um, there's a Pasuk at the very last Parsha of the Torah, the very last um, Bible reading of the year, right, from the Torah. And um, I don't remember the exact lesson of the Pasuk, like what it says exactly there, but the, um, the Midrashic interpretation is that God actually did go to other groups of people and give them the opportunity to receive the Torah, and they all declined it. But the thing is, he asked them in such a way where he knew they would say, no, we're not interested. So the Kedusha Slavi asks this question, he says, if, he knew, if God knew that they were going to decline the offer to receive the Torah, why did he give it? And he answers there that it left an imprint with them. Even though they declined it, it still left a spark there, so that when the Jewish people go into exile, anytime they interact in the non-Jewish world with a conversation or whatever, there is some purpose to that uh, conversation or that meeting, um, because there is an imprint of the Torah there with these people. 
And we see this in other places as well, right? There's a popular um, midrash that the whole world was silent at Matan Torah. There was no echo. Um, so there's this idea that the whole world experienced the degree uh, of receiving the Torah. And, and that's why I think that these, there's commonalities in storytelling across the world. Amazing, amazing. I love all those answers. As an aside, um, they say um, a lot of pro- a lot of things we find in Proverbs and and uh, and, you, and all that like wisdom from King Solomon. And they do say that people came from around the world and uh, and they brought back his knowledge and it, it spread that way. Confucius, they say, a lot of stuff comes from him. So that concept of traveling is is quite quite fascinating. Yes, yeah, and, and that's also discussed in the, in the Talmud. The Gemara and Sanhedrin talks about Abraham blessing his children and sending them off into the east. And there's various interpretations about what that what that could mean. But um, yeah, cool. So before we dive into some of the examples, and we may not get to those examples till after the break, but sure. one thing I, I thought was really very important that you point out that all the stories in mythology. Um, basically take one, we'll call it, train of thought, and any story that, even if it's similar in the Torah, has really a whole different bend. So could you elaborate on that? Yes. So phase one of the book, so so to speak, is just recognizing that there's um, many cultures that share similar myths, similar stories. But phase two is taking a look at each one of them and focusing on the Greek, it's just really focusing on the, the Greek myth, um, and realizing that the morality that these stories point to, though they may seem the same or have similar elements, is actually very different. And in the case of the Greek mythology, while it's very good at explaining human nature, and it's been used by psychologists, for instance, to, to, to do that, it doesn't really offer any solutions. It's kind of tragic and hopeless. Um, <laughs> Whereas the mythology or the storytelling of the Torah um, presents ho- a future, a possibility of hope um, that man can actually transcend his nature with God's help, and uh, you know there's a positive connotation to it. So the stories move in two different directions. Even though they seem the same, they really contain um, a different message. So very I, different message. Now I don't remember. Um, I did read everything you sent me. But I don't remember. Did you or do you have a a feeling or a thought why that is? That why you know it's in the in the mythology, it's all tragic and everybody dies and they can't help themselves and uh, they have to run away and escape. And the Torah is giving you ways to actually succeed or through God you'll succeed. Why do you think the myths all end tragic and the Torah, of course, is ending positive? You know, I believe I believe it was the Rambam who said about I forgive. Forgive my lack of knowledge regarding which Greek philosopher, Plato, Aristotle, possibly Aristotle. He said he was such a, a genius, and he came so close to like such planes of knowledge, but he didn't have God. He didn't believe in God, so therefore he sort of missed the mark. And I think that is the biggest factor here. I mean, how, how can you have hope in anything else? This is a passage from Tehillim as well, you know, hope to Hashem. Um, so we have that in our storytelling, and they don't. So, you know, consequently, what, what else is there but just the way that human nature will play out in, in their stories, and, and it, it only ends tragically. <laughs> right, no, sorry, the, the point, I think, is very good. I know, coming up to a break, except I have no idea when, but we'll be there soon. <laughs> um, are you waiting for me to say we're going into a break? 
They let you finish now, cause I'm music. Charles, do me a favor. Stay through the break. Sure. We're gonna get some stories. We're gonna talk. You listen to Rabbi Tzvi on Let's Talk Torah, and we're gonna be right back. Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're gonna have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. I'll tell you what happened. G'day, Morty. I got the Szechuan sauce. We're at C2E2 with the legendary Chris Claremont. Greetings, my fellow geeks. My name is Jordan Trevilian, and this is Get It to the Geeks. We are here with David Yost, the original Blue Power Ranger. Nobody right. promised you when you bought the thing on PS4 that you could play it on Switch. Wait, your, your excuse is garbage. I'm going to pull out my crossbow. All right, sweet chainmail armor. Let's see what you got. Welcome back to Who's Got Chutzpah. I'm your host, Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. Andy, are you ready? Uh, Andy, what holiday is this associated with? Oh, boy. Uh, uh. Sukkot? I'm sorry, that's not the answer we were looking for. Whitney, for the win, can you tell us which holiday is this? Up? I know. Shavuot. No, I'm sorry. I've got the answer. Ta-da! What? My show, Let's Talk Torah, where we talk Torah, holidays, faith, and all the things that help us live our life. That's Let's Talk Torah, Thursdays at 3 p.m. That's pretty good. Times we see a guy running down to first base, and it's, it turns into a hobble. Get yeah. umped. I mean, that's the, <laughs> getting umped. <laughs> that, can't, that can't be the same guy. Can't be the same guy. And we're back, joined by Charles Hanna. Author of Sign and Limbus, How Greek Mythology and the Bible Present Different Takes on Life. Chaim David, you're still with me? I am still with you. Yeah, Excellent. Thank you so much. Now, I don't know how much time we have, probably a good 12 minutes. So I have so many different examples written down. So I tell you what, why don't you pick yours first, then I'll see which one I want to pick next. But give us an example of a, of a myth where you're dealing with Greek mythology. I'm sure most people are familiar with most of them, but you'll help us out. And the the Torah similar story, and we'll compare and contrast it. So you can pick whichever one you want first. Sure. Um, I'll just I'll pick the one that comes to mind uh, first, I guess, on our list. Um, so the story of Icarus, or Icarus, I never I never know how to pronounce this properly. But yeah, Icarus, me neither. Or, or, okay, That's okay. <laughs> I had it right there. Um, the story is basically, you know, a lot of people know he wanted to fly, so uh, he attached wings of wax to his body, and his father told him, don't fly too high, because, you know, the sun will melt the wings, and you'll fall, you'll plummet, and don't fly too low, um, but, you know, surf will wash away the wax, or, or I'm not sure. So, of course, uh, he puts on the wings, and he flies too high, and they, they melt, and he plummets to his death. That's the Greek myth. Now, it's very interesting, it's fascinating, actually, Rashi actually mentions this story, he doesn't say that it's Greek, but he just mentions the same story in um, a comment in, in Parshas Lechlecha, I think it is. Um, but that's, that's not 
the parallel I'm going to to draw. Um, although he sort of fortifies the point by saying that the person who did that put on wings to leap and rebel against his maker. So, you know, with the Greek myth and Rashi's comment, we see there's something unnatural about it. It's, there's something not good about it. Um, but contrast this to a similar idea that we see in, in Bracius, the book of Genesis, where Abraham is, is uh, told by God right, that, he, that his destiny will transcend the stars, that he is not locked into fate, and that he does not have to be childless, that he will have children, and, he will, and these children will develop into the nation of Israel. And to show him this point, uh, Rashi brings down a Midrash that he actually pulled him out of the atmosphere. He flew up, up, into, the, up into the sky, out into outer space to drive home the point. And the contrast that I see here is that in the Greek myth, we see that transcending your limits can only end in tragedy. But uh, in the Jewish version of this idea it ends in success because it's done with God's help. God can help us transcend our nature, whatever that nature is uh, that we're inclined to do. If we're, you know, everybody has their own negative traits, but we don't have to tragically you know, go along with them or succumb to them. We can transcend that and, and succeed. Um, so that's one example I would, would cite there. Yeah, that's, a, that's a, just a, a great example. And again, it's just, it's just so typical that in the Greek myth, no matter what happens, everybody knows the beginning of the story that at the end of the day, somebody's dying. Everybody's dying. It's like it's like Shakespeare. Right. At the end of the play, everybody's on the floor dead, and <laughs> yeah, and that's and and at the and in the Torah stories, for lack of a better word, um, at the end of the story, everyone's become better than what they were before, and everyone's uh, um, accepted God for what He wanted them to do, and they succeed, and it's a it's an amazing compare and contrast. Okay, I got one. So, um, I don't know. Everybody loves the Midas touch, right? Which is that much. Most of us know the story. You'll explain it better. But whatever he touched turned to gold. Well, now you have a problem because lunch is gold and you, you hug your daughter and she's gold. But you can do the story better than me. And then you'll tell me, um, actually, in your case, it was not a, a biblical story, but it was a Talmudic story that you compare and contrast it to. So let's uh, talk about our friend King Midas. Sure. I think you, you pretty much summarize the story. You know, he, he um, to make the, uh, it's a longer story, but to make it short, and the part that matters is that um, he was he was granted a favor by the Greek god Dionysus, which already is you know it's the god, it's it's associated with drunkenness, right? So it's not so it's kind of like all about um, moving towards our passions or our desires without inhibition, and like what you know, sort of like in in the fairy tale of Hansel and Gretel, where the kids are eating the house of candy. It's like you know, how far would you go if you could do whatever you want? Well, he wants gold, so King Midas, everything he touches will turn to gold. That sounds awesome, but as you said, you know, at the end of the day, he learns that it's not so great. And again, that's the, that's the moves towards tragedy, you know, as we go with our own desires. But um, the, compari- the comparison that I did was to um, the Talmudic narrative of, of Gamzu Latova, which he was a rabbi. In the story, he's going to Rome to meet with uh, the emperor, the consulate, I'm not sure. And uh, along the way, he takes um, a chest with him of gold as a gift. And he stops at a, an inn or a hotel, as we'd call it these days. And um, someone hears what he's doing, and they uh, steal all the money, and they replace it with sand. So he says, he wakes up, and this is his name. His namesake is, this too is for the good, right? Comes to Latova. He has total lamuna and bitachon. He, he has faith and reliance on Hashem. It doesn't faze him, so he moves on with his mission. He goes to the emperor, 
And one of the senators stands up and says, this gift of sand must be like the sand that their ancestor Abraham used to fight armies with. So they threw it up in the air. They saw that it actually turned into arrows, and um, the Romans used it in battle, and they gave Gamzulatova a, a chest of gold or some other huge reward. I forget exactly. And he returns back to the inn. Um, and then the, the postscript of the story, by the way, is the innkeeper sees this, and he tries to do the same thing, um, but he, uh, it doesn't really quite work out for him. It's just sand. So he gets punished. Gamzulatova comes home, and he's rewarded. And he has this proverbial Midas touch that, you know, we say everything he touches turns to gold. And it's not because he has a desire for gold or money. It's because he has such reliance on God, and he has such faith in God that everything he does succeeds. And that's, that's the real key difference here. In the Midas story of Greek mythology, um, he, you know, he breaks the glass ceiling and he does everything he wants to do, but it doesn't really... Too much of a good thing is too much. It doesn't work out for him. In the Torah version, the, the real success is believing in God, and that's what generates the, the, the good life. That, that's the uh, that's another comparison I, I do in the book. Yeah, I man, it's really very. I, I would take it could be you do in the book. Take it further, but I, I would take it further. In other words, the person who, as we say, is going after the gold, like the innkeeper that first stole the money, and then he thought his dirt was uh, was miraculous dirt, so he tries to get even right. more money. So that the whoever is going for the gold, which is probably the wrong phrase here, but whoever is looking, <laughs> I know who's ever looking just for the money. If that's all they're into, so that's Midas, right? So then at the end, you're dead. You, you lose everything. You have nothing. But when it comes to Nachmish Gamzu, so he wasn't looking for the money at all. That's the only thing he didn't care about. He just needed to serve God. So he is going to get, he's getting the gold. He's going to have everything. But it's interesting that we use, it's like funny if you think about it. We use the phrase, he has the Midas touch for someone who's successful. When really, Midas was not, at the end of the day, Midas was not successful. It's like a very interesting, uh, you know, way people use the phrase when they actually have it wrong. You ever think about that? Yeah, it's true. And that's because usually when they use the phrase, they are, they are referring to some sort of uh, tangible physical success. You know, he's, he's the greatest salesman on the team. You know, he has the Midas touch. Every, he closes every deal, right? So it's all about, you know, physical. And nobody ever says the Midas touch in comparison to, like, um, you know, something spiritual. Um, yeah, but I, I right. agree. Yeah, so. Right, cool. I, I it's, it's, yeah. Okay, let's, uh, we should have time for one more, and then we're going to learn how to get your book, and uh, and if you, sure. you want to go out there and speak, I know you do some speaking engagements and stuff, so just out of your hat, pick one more. Um, okay, so, <laughs> um, I would, I would, I did a comparison of uh, Goliath, right, um, and um, Achilles, Okay. Um, so Tell me Achilles out. So who's Achilles? Greek, right. Achilles in the Greek myth, um, he was a warrior um, whose mother dipped him into the river Styx so that he would become um, impenetrable. He was he was like a, um, um, the the right words are eluding me here. He was like he had he had yeah sorry um, it, like he wasn't immortal but he was totally protected from all harm except the one part where she held him by the ankle or the heel. And that's, by the way, where the expression come, Achilles heel, it's your weak, it comes from. It's your weak point. So um, that's his one weak spot. The rest of him is impervious to damage. He's like a tank. So, of course, 
uh, when he goes to fight in the Trojan War, uh, a spear lands in his heel and he dies. So okay. I compared this to the story of, of David HaMelech, or uh, he wasn't yet king, but the young David, right, and, and Goliath. And Goliath was a behemoth. He was a tank, right? If you look in, in Shmuel, it, says, it describes his, like, armor, his massive armor, his massive sword. Um, nobody could fight him, except David come, came along, and he killed him with a stone from a slingshot in the forehead. Now, that's an Achilles heel, right? A, 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 you know, he didn't fight him, like, normally. But he hit him at one tiny spot where he was vulnerable, and he fell down dead, and he was able to, to cut off his head. There's other midrashim about that, which are interesting, but um, what I discussed is how in the Greek myth, it's not Achilles' fault that he has a weak spot. It's his mother's. He can always blame someone else. He, he can say, it's not my fault that I failed in life. It's my mom, because my mom did this to me, right? And that kind of sounds like, uh, you know, some, some psychological writings... From, from the last century, right, that use Greek myths to discuss this, that our past so deeply affects us that we can't succeed. And it's someone else's fault. It's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. But in the story of Goliath, the weak point, if you look at the Hebrew, is Mesach is his forehead, and that relates to a term that we use for arrogance in some literature. How's um, Mesach, right? A, a brazen forehead. Arrogance. And we know about Goliath that he would come out and he would say, send me a man to fight. And the Midrash explains that when he said, send me a man to fight, he was hurling insults at God. Because God is called Ish Milchama in the a man of war, so to speak, proverbially, in the Song of the Red Sea. So Goliath was coming out and challenging God. How arrogant, right? He was such an arrogant person. And the, the spot where his downfall came from was his arrogance. So our weak points, according to the Torah story, right, it's our responsibility to fix them. If we don't fix them, they remain our weak points. In the Greek myth, I can just say that, you know, part of the reason I failed was because of someone else. They held me by the heel and dipped me in the river. If they had dipped me all the way in, I would be okay. So but it's in, all the, right. in the Torah's accounting of this, we have responsibility about our own weak points. And, of course, you know, the idea is that we should try to fix them. Right. So, so. you're, you're no, so you're saying very good. No, it's, we started out the conversation that in the Torah stories, um, God can, and it doesn't have to be a tragic ending. So even though it's true that technically Goliath also has a tragic ending because he dies, but there the difference again is all dependent on God. In other words, in the in the by Achilles, it's not his fault. He can blame everybody else. While at the same time with Goliath, um, there it's his own fault, and there's no one to blame but him. So we're, yeah. we're, I'm up against my break. Charles, this was so much fun. You have so much good stuff to say. As I told everyone, Charles Hanna wrote a new book. you got to read this book, Sign in Olympus. Um, Charles, how can we get the book? If someone wants to contact you, how can they do that? Sure. Um, so you can get the book on Amazon. You just type in um, the title of the book. There, there's a few authors with the same name on Amazon, so um, you know you could look that way. But the, the, the name of the book, Sign in Olympus, um, Greek myths in the Torah. You can type that in. It's on there. It's an ebook. I will have it available uh, in print, and you can order it from Amazon as well. Um, if you want to contact me, um, the best way is just to, to use my email. It's my full name, Charles David Hanna, H A N N A, at gmail.com. And um, yeah, definitely thank you so much for having me on the show. I, I really appreciate it. Charles, thanks so much. It was really, really fun. Have a great Shabbos, and we'll do this again. And here comes my music. We do not have Rabbi Jonas and Goldson today. When we got back, though, I got some good stories, some Torah stuff. Hold through the break. Let's do Rabbi Tzu and Let's Talk Torah, and we'll be right back. 
Why are we here? What makes a person truly good? For those answers, you're gonna have to take a philosophy class. But if you're more interested in who would win in a fight between R2-D2 and a Dalek, watch Get It to the Geeks. Detroit. It's the home of some of the world's most talented artists. It's where techno and Motown were born. It's a city where you can experience raw, untamed rock and roll. I'm Ben Rose, and I'm inviting you to join me weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians, info on what's going on around town, and a playlist curated by me just for you. Welcome back to Pop That Culture. That's the horror movie. <laughs> Bury the phone in the bat cemetery. It's got a cord. I'm Ben Rose for the Motor City Juke Joint. I'll have interviews with musicians and a playlist curated by me just for you. Hello, folks. Welcome to the Greg Russell Movie Show. When I have a couple cocktails, everything's funnier. <laughs> I still just love that line. Producer, director, how did this whole thing come about for you? you enjoyed that interview as much as I did. So much good stuff to to think about. It's a, just a different focus that there's all kinds of stories out there. And it's interesting that all those different cultures, uh, they're tragic stories. And maybe that's where Shakespeare got his ideas from, right? That everything ends tragic. And, uh, and the Torah's concept is it does not have to end tragic. You are your own man. You can make your own decisions. So let's take... A minute, we didn't even touch on this week's Torah portion. And this week's Torah portion is full, it's Kiseitse, it is full, full of commands. So let's, we'll talk about one. Um, you know, I, one of the things after the, after the wedding ceremony, and then there's, okay, the kids get pictures and pictures, and then there's dancing, and there's a meal, and there's more dancing, and it was, it was really, it was beautiful, it was beautiful. Well, actually, for the next week, you're talking about honeymoons. For the next week, the, the Chas and Kyle, the bride and groom, are uh, supposed to just hang out. They're, they're not, they don't go to work. They don't, uh, they don't do stuff. They just really hang out. And generally speaking, every evening, different friends or family will make a party. And again, there'll be a meal. And people like to talk and stories and stories and, and talk about the Torah portion. So um, one of the things that came up was an interesting, one of the commands of this week's Torah portion is people from Ammon and Moab, those are two nations which don't exist anymore, if they would convert, they're Jewish, if they convert, they're Jewish, but they cannot marry, at least the men, the women could, but the men cannot marry um, into the Jewish people. They can marry other converts, but they're not marrying into the Jewish people, people that are actually from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Now, it's interesting if you think about it. Like the Torah says, why? What did Amon and Moab do wrong? So two things, but the main thing they did wrong was they did not bring out bread and water when the Jewish people were traveling in the desert towards the land of Israel, and they passed by Amon and Moab, and Amon and Moab, like, ignored them and didn't bring out any food. Why should they bring out food? Because Amon and Moab come from Lot. Lot is Abraham's nephew, and Abraham was responsible for saving Lot when uh, Sodom and Amorah were, Gomorrah were destroyed. So if he couldn't teach his children this concept of of Hakar Satov, of recognizing when someone did good for you, then their DNA is suspect, and more than suspect according to the Torah. There's something with their DNA, and therefore the Torah says we don't want them to actually mix their DNA. Now, it's only the men, it's not the women, because the women, they stay home. They're not out in the fields traveling out in the desert to go bring, uh, to bring bread and water, so therefore the women could, and Ruth, right, Ruth, or Ruth, um, the great-grandmother of King David that we talked about earlier today, um, she is from Moab. Um, the reason why nowadays it's, uh, it's irrelevant is because there was a great king, at least a mighty king called Sanchev, he moved around nations. When he conquered the world, he moved every nation to a different country, so people fight for their country. If you move me for a different, to a different country, I'm not like so interested in actually fighting. So therefore, um, so, so therefore, nowadays, you don't know who anybody is, so you go according to the majority, and the majority says they're not coming from those nations. So it's, uh, they use that as an example, and I said a similar thought, that when we live our lives with gratitude and we're always recognizing when somebody does good for us and especially a spouse, right? The spouse is the easiest one to forget that they made you supper, they did your laundry, they they drove carpool, they take care of the house or the husband's side, right? He's he's working, he's he's working long hours, he's trying to bring money in so that you can buy what you need and what you want. If we recognize, we have gratitude to our spouses for all the good they do for us, life is beautiful. So as always, though, we got to quickly get to our letter of the week because I do have a story I wanted to share with you. So this week's letter, hopefully it's behind me on the right, um, is the letter Ayin. The letter Ayin um, is a very interesting shape. It's almost like a V with like a leg coming out of one of the bottoms. Um, that's an Ayin. It actually has no sound of its own. It's almost like a letter that's used um, when we want to put in the vowels and the sounds. The, the ayin letter is used, but it, it actually has no pronunciation of its own. It doesn't make a sound. I mean, there could be old, it could be some do say, but for the most part, it's not. Its numerical value is seventy. The word I wanted was eight or ace. Ace means time. And there's a a time and place for everything. There's a right time and there's a right place. And uh, interesting, one of the speeches they gave, the, the way my son met his, uh, his wife was uh, she, uh, many girls don't like to babysit as much nowadays, and she did a favor for a niece of mine, and she started babysitting for her. So my, I'm, not, I'm sorry, not my niece, my sister-in-law. Since my sister-in-law knew this nice girl who was babysitting for her, she said, oh, this girl would be a great match for my son. And there goes the story. And we hopefully they lived happily ever after. So here's an interesting story about time. Also, I'll say it as quickly as I could to get through the story. 
So there was a rabbi, his name was Reb Zalman, and uh, he was traveling by wagon with his wagon driver, and as they're traveling down the roads, this snowstorm comes out from nowhere and just engulfs them, and the snow is coming down, and the snow, and more snow, and and at, at some point, the horses don't want to move anymore, and it's freezing cold, right? They're not in a car with heating, um, and there's no plows that are going to come and plow them out, and the horses don't want to budge, and they're freezing, and they see in the distance uh, a light, so they figure it must be a house, somebody's house. Um, they force the horses and force themselves. They drag themselves to get to this guy's inn. They knock on the door. The innkeeper opens up. Happens, happens, happens to be Jewish. He brings them in and he warms them up. And, and his wife brings them tea and he's taking care of them. And uh, when this Rizalman warms himself up, he says, wow, like, are there Jews in this neighborhood? And they said, no, I'm the only guy. I'm the only Jew. I have an inn. There are no Jews here. So Zaman says, so what do you do for a prayer? Like, when do you pray? Where do you pray? So pray, I pray in my house. There's no synagogue here. Once a year on the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah, I go pray. So the rabbi says, come on. You know that God takes care of everything. If God takes care of everything, so uh, what are you worried about? You should just move to the city. Okay. The next morning, this Rosham wakes up, and the innkeeper has packed up his whole inn. So Rosham says, where are you going? He says, what do you mean? You told me that God can take care of me anywhere. If he can take care of me anywhere, no reason to wait. I'm out of here. I'm going to the city. Okay, interesting enough, the, um, we've talked the whole day about mythology and stories and living happily ever after. Um, three days later, the entire village burned down, and most of the people were killed in that, in that confl- uh, conflagration, whatever the word is, in that fire. So, But again, there's, there's a time and a place, and here goes my music. Gotta thank everybody. Thank you to our wonderful sponsor listeners. You know, I couldn't do it without you. Uh, my wonderful production team, we have Kelsey, Stephen, Alana, Angel. I hope I've left you some food for thought. Until next week, I am Rabbi Tzvi Jacobson. You've been listening to Let's Talk Torah on NRM Streamcast. And until next week, don't forget to think about it.